0: Hello, everyone. I'm Trent Lewis. Welcome to another edition of Rural Routes, the program where we gather every day at this time. Well, we do it Monday through Friday anyway. And what we do when we gather is continue to address the issues between rural and urban America. This might be another We the People segment. Jenny Swagger, are you really there again, finally?
1: I am. Yes, I am. And we should let everyone know that we're going to be doing this on the first Thursday of every month rather than every single
0: Thursday. What if there's two Thursdays on the first week of every month?
1: We might be able to work something (laughs) out.
0: Don't think about that too hard. (laughs) There's only one. (laughs) Steve Strasheim. Uh, They do okay? They do it like a real German?
2: You hit it just fine.
0: Uh, Mitchell, Iowa, joining us. I'm I'm sure nobody's ever confused you being from the Corn Palace capital of the world, Mitchell, South Dakota, huh, Steve?
2: Not too often, though.
0: No, what, why? I would think Mitchell, there's a Mitchell Nebraska too, by the way.
2: There's a few of them out there. I think,
0: I suppose there's a Mitchell everything, but, uh, Steve, (laughs) why would you get together on a a pad of cold ice and swing a stick and hit a puck? Why why would that be fun?
2: You know, I, I never even did that. I, uh, to this day, I still can't ice skate, believe it or not.
0: Really? No way.
2: I got on the – I started my uh, career in minor league hockey uh, on the business side. Uh, I met a guy at the wrong time of life or the right time of life, (laughs) whatever you want to say. And he said, hey, "Hey, can you sell advertising? And I said, sure. I "I don't know. I think so. I just got out of college. I probably could do anything. He says, well, we're starting a minor league hockey team, and uh, we need a guy to do operations and sell advertising. I said, sure, why not? Count in. And then three years later, I I mean, yeah, it's like one of those other things. If you put your mind to something, you can just do about anything. And I immersed myself in the game and had some good uh, guys around me that taught me a lot, uh, some coaches that were on the staff and taught me the game. And uh, three years later, I was a general manager of the team. Wow.
0: Where's that team at?
2: Uh it was up in Fargo, North Dakota. Uh and then they uh folded up shop around let's see, what was that, two thousand eight, and then that's actually what brought me down to Iowa. I took a job with a team in Iowa in Mason City.
1: Oh Mason City. uh, Sarah (laughs) Brohair's
2: Yep, yep, I know Sarah.
1: She was one of my very first social media friends. Way back when. And then Shannon Latham.
2: Oh, I know Shannon too. Oh, yeah.
1: there's so many people just, up there.
2: We know everybody up here. It's just so uh, it's so sparse. You just know everybody.
0: Uh, Steve, I'm fascinated with this hockey thing. Before we continue, you on. all
1: have breakfast club once a month, I think. Uh, oh, they they, right. they, they had ahead. a social
2: media breakfast club. Yeah, and yeah, I had. Uh, yeah, there was a oh gosh, that was that seems like a lifetime ago. Uh, I jumped in on it a few times. I wasn't a regular, but yeah. It was
0: cool. They did a nice job with that. All right, Steve, I, I, I want to pursue this hockey thing before we move on because yeah. I I just never knew much of anything about hockey. You still have not attended a hockey game, although Kearney, Nebraska has a hockey team, and my family has gone. I was just yeah. gone. <laughs> uh, but I happened to be in Winnipeg the day – I was speaking in Winnipeg the day they announced the Jets were coming back. Yeah, yep if you don't understand hockey and the culture and the uh, the disease that it brings about with people, Especially all you in need Canada. to do, yeah, especially <laughs> in Canada, especially in Winnipeg. But I, I didn't really know and even that we had a minor league system. I don't know how that all works. I, I would just be really intrigued to know how the structure works and how prevalent hockey is in the United States.
2: Uh, it's, it's kind of a, mm-hmm. I always say it's a, It's a really simple game with complex rules, which kind of keeps a lot of people out of uh, being a fan because they just don't understand, like, what the heck is icing? We don't even know what that means. Um, But hockey is actually pretty big, and it's actually really growing down south. It's really popular in a lot of the southern states now. Uh, It has been for quite a few years. Uh, But the minor league system works really similarly to like what you would think of like minor league baseball. You start off playing like, you know, peewees and, you know, mites and squirts uh, when you're a a little tight and then you move your way up into high school type ranks. And then you get into like the junior system, which is kind of sub minor league. And then you go to college and then you get into the pro minors and then you get up into the show, as we say, up in the NHL.
0: It sounds like you verified that it is a disease because you have mites and squirts. (laughs) For sure. For sure. (laughs) Those are your words. I didn't put those words in your mouth.
2: No, not at all. But when you go to Canada, as you can probably attest to, I mean, you can go to McDonald's uh, or find any TV in any waiting room, and there's always a hockey game on the TV. I mean, it's... Uh, it's, it's kind of a whole uh, even people you wouldn't expect to be hockey fans up there know the game, know everything. It's crazy, it's really a different culture up there when it comes to hockey. Uh,
0: okay, so the other time I was in Canada, I was speaking at Brussels Agri Supply in Brussels, Ontario, and it was a, a fencing demonstration. Brussels Agri Supply does a fantastic job, and I think they're the number one. Um, electric fence provider for people in the world. Number one dealer. And my opening act, like I was, you know, had some kind of a keynote role was, uh, an old washed up hockey guy that still attracted a crowd. Like you can't believe And his, I'm giving, this is a trivia question. See how well, you know, hockey, because I don't know it at all, but I knew this guy cause I met him. His son was a famous St. Louis blues player at one time.
1: Oh gosh that could be yeah.
2: anybody really there's a lot of uh, no
0: there can't be there can't be a lot of father sons that played together Brent hall there you go bobby hall
2: bobby hall
0: his dad was the uh, was the opening speaker and uh, i mean he was like 75 years old and the 80-year-old women that showed
2: up to see this guy was amazing <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> you know it's kind of interesting there's a there's a farming Uh, hockey crossover in Canada where a lot of back in the day, it's kind of probably changed a lot nowadays, but uh, back in the day, a lot of the big farm kids that wanted to get off the farm would uh, be the good fighters on a hockey team in Canada because that was their way to get off the farm is to learn how to fight uh, and be the good fighter on the team. So a lot of those big burly guys from the seventies and eighties that were the big fighters were probably Canadian farm kids. They were,
0: and they they all showed up, but they all had a nose that looks more like mine today than yours, I have to say, Steve. (laughs) You you look like an executive in the hockey, but I had a boar break my nose last week, and it's starting to heal pretty good, but you don't look like you had a broken nose at all.
2: No, not from hockey, no.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right, so you translated all of that into the farming world today. What are you doing?
2: So, currently, we're a two-acre mixed vegetable farm. We sell mostly uh, direct customer. We do some grocery. We do some restaurant sales, um, some farmer's markets. We have a home delivery program. We specialize in leafy greens and microgreens, as Jenny put that nice little graphic together to promote my appearance today. Uh, Front and center are the microgreens. Uh, That's always kind of intriguing to people because they're like, what in the world is a microgreen? But we grow microgreens year-round, and I'm sitting five feet from uh, my grow setup here uh, under LED lights on some shelves. They grow extremely quickly. How do people use them? That's always a big question. Um, They're great for garnish, put on sandwiches, put into an omelet.
1: So are they sprouts like... um jimmy john's sandwiches no I... oh,
2: yeah okay. so uh microgreens and sprouts are very similar uh we're getting into the real deep techniques here but uh sprout is basically you take some seed and you put it in water and soak it in water and let the the root shoot out and then you take it and drain the water off and then you eat the seed hole in the roots that's a sprout microgreens we actually plant the seed let it grow harvest the green material at about a you know couple inches tall at most cotyledon stage uh, if anybody knows biology plant biology um and then we harvest that green material and that's what we sell you as a microgreen.
0: just as a point of reference we have cotyledons in animal agriculture as well and it's all about the same thing it creates the birth of a new life that's what we're going to continue to talk about with uh, steve Strassheim from mitchell iowa and Jenny Swaggart is back from Tremont, Illinois. We'll be back with the second leg of the journey. Roll out after this. And now we talk about immune health. We talk about health in general. The world's authority on nitric oxide production. Dr. Nathan Bryan explains.
2: We've got about 14 COVID clinics around the U.S. where we have a, a nitric oxide drug trial going on. I'm exposed to COVID probably every day. You know, pre-COVID, we as humans are exposed to viruses and bacteria every day of our life. That's just the world we live in. Some people get sick. Some people don't. Why do some people get sick and why do others not? It all boils down to their ability to generate nitric oxide and to have certain things replete in their body like vitamin D, zinc, vitamin C, selenium. If you're nutrient deficient, you're going to get sick. If you can't make nitric oxide, you're going to get sick. If you do all these things, you can be exposed to, to COVID or any other virus, and your immune system nips it in the bud, and you
0: don't get sick from it. It's
2: really that simple.
0: For full details about the science and place an order, go to no2u.com. That's N-O, number two, letter U, Put Trent. Trent is your coupon code. That gets you a 10% discount plus free shipping. no2u.com. Trent Coupon Code. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Trent Luce alongside Steve Strassheim, Jenny Swaggart. There's a lot of German influence in this yes, outfit sir. today. I'll tell you that <laughs> much right now. Oh, my goodness. Be hard-headed. Somebody's going to get into a squabble and not get yep. up. So, Steve, I detect from what you said in all of that that you're two acres growing microgreens is uh that's all inside in a greenhouse?
2: Uh no, we have uh the microgreens uh are separate from our garden operation in in a sense. Uh they're indoors in my shop here year round uh in a controlled heated environment. Uh we have four high tunnel structures. People I mean you can call them a greenhouse, but we call them hoop houses, uh, high tunnels. Uh, we plant right in the soil in those. We have uh, four of those. That's about 6,000 square feet of space under all four of those. And then the rest of it is all outdoor production. So we have can a little you, bit of everything.
1: Can you well, start at the very Genie. beginning?
0: Yeah, Jenny, good.
1: How did you get started? Because when we first met, I think, I and mean, we've never yeah. met in person, I don't think, or maybe we have. I don't uh, remember. I don't think so, no. But you were, well, we both were trying to layer. And I was having a huge problem with predators taking the chickens and everything. And you were like, well, look at this. I don't have problems. (laughs) There's no top to the cage, but I never have problems. And that was really kind of where you started.
2: Yeah. So um, I never really wanted to be a farmer. I guess I'll tell you the Reader's Digest version of my story. When I left uh, home in Montana. I went to college in Fargo. Never wanted to. I grew up on a sugar beet farm back in Montana. Loved it. Great way to grow up, but I just never wanted to be a farmer ever. I left, uh, never turned back, never looked back. I wanted to go to the city and see the sights and do stuff that I never got to do when I was a kid. Uh, so then I ended up in Fargo. And then that ended up bringing me down to Iowa. Uh, still never at that point wanted to be a farmer, uh, wanted to be in business, wanted to just not, I mean, agriculture was the furthest thing from my mind in those areas. I just left it all behind. Uh, but it was actually, um, I always say it's kind of a cauldron of different things happened around the 2012 era that, um, if any one of those things would have fell into the cauldron, I wouldn't have been a farmer or whatever took back an interest in agriculture. But uh just happened to be working. A, I got out of the hockey business, uh, took a town job. Uh, I always say I became a civilian again uh, in the sales world, uh, just a, a bills for a few years. It was a really nice job, a little company, great family to work for. But that obviously really wasn't tripping my trigger. Uh, just could have made a nice living if I would have stayed with it. You know, and there was nothing wrong with it. It just, you know, didn't scratch that itch. And then um, at the same time, my wife and I were doing this new diet, and that's kind of what led me to like discovering local food. At the time, I had no concept of like local produced food at all. Like my whole vision of like what agriculture was was from growing up in commodity agriculture. You take your sugar beets to the factory, you take your wheat to the elevator, you go vacation in Arizona for a couple weeks in the winter. They probably send you a check at some point. I think I don't know, and then you start it all over again. And then um, and then the third thing that fell into the cauldron, which just is the sappy part of the story, um, I was sitting watching the Super Bowl. I think this was 2012. And that Paul Harvey Dodge Truck commercial came on. And uh, I used to drive around in the pickup with my grandpa when I was a kid listening to Paul Harvey. And it was just like this real nostalgic moment, like thinking back to you know how great life was on the farm when I was a kid and da-da-da-da-da. And all these memories just came swirling back. And then, you know, we were kind of looking at local food from a diet perspective and uh, just like, you know, me, you know, I kind of like scratched my head like, what, what's going on here? Do I really, you know, I was like getting these ideas of like, uh, uh, and then we were watching some documentaries on local food and saw some farmers, uh, how they were doing it. and like, man, they got it all figured out. This is how it should be, right? I don't know anything about agriculture, but that's the way it, you know, whatever, you put all that into a cauldron, and all of a sudden, I think I want to be a farmer again for some reason, and uh, just started uh, doing a ton of research, doing a lot of different stuff. And I actually, speaking of the chickens that you mentioned, my way in was that I wanted to be a livestock guy. I wanted I was saw the work of Joel Salatin. I mentioned him when I talk about my past uh, into getting into agriculture. Read all of his books, saw a lot of his videos. I thought, you know, he's got the whole template right there. If you want to be a pastured broiler farmer, you just read that book and it'll just walk you right through it. And so uh, it took me a couple of years to kind of get to that point, but uh, I didn't have any land at the time. That's kind of the other quirky part of my story. We didn't, we lived right in the middle of town, we had no land, didn't know anybody in farming around Iowa. My wife is a city girl. She doesn't know any farmers. I had no connection to the agriculture world where I was living at, uh, so I didn't have anybody to go talk to or anybody to ask. I mean, I learned everything I know <laughs> about present day farming from YouTube and Facebook, and so. Um,
1: and learning by doing.
2: And learning by doing, but the, the the part you know that kind of held us up a little bit at the beginning is uh, okay. We, we got the knowledge or think we have the knowledge. Now we need a little spot to do it, but here's the problem. We don't have any land. We don't own any land. And if you know anything about North central Iowa, land is a little on the high side for price. So you're not just going to go buy some land to do it. Uh, but my in-laws have a little uh, acreage uh, that was about 10 miles from our house at the time. And they weren't really doing much. So I begged my in-laws, Hey, can I just use a little spot? I want to do this little thing and, uh begged them and begged them, kind of tormented them about it for a, a couple of weeks. And they're finally like, just do it behind the barn where nobody can see it. I don't care, whatever. So I was all of a sudden in the pastured broiler business. And, uh, you know, I have a sales marketing background. So uh, that part of it was easy for me or, or easier maybe than like what some maybe new inexperienced farmers might uh, have trouble with is anybody can grow the product. That's kind of the easy part in a way. It's what do you do with it when you have it? I mean, right now, anybody can go, you know, grow you a truckload of lettuce, but what do you do with it? You know, where do you sell it to? So developing those markets was um, probably, for me, more work than actually growing the chickens. But we did it through Facebook, and uh, we're very successful with it. We sold out our first year, sold out our second year, third year. And that's kind of what led me to market gardening, as we call it, is uh, we had found some more land in the meantime, and I wanted to do bigger things. I was still working my sales job in town, uh, being uh, masquerading as a chicken farmer at nighttime and in the morning. And I had this little one-acre plot at the time, and I kept thinking, well, uh, you know, we're running about a 1,000 broiler chickens a year at the end. And, you know, a 1,000 broiler chickens is – you know, a good little side hustle, but it's not a full-time job. So what else could I be doing with that one acre? And I was still kind of in the livestock mindset. I wanted to get into pastured pigs and who knows what else. Um, but the reality was is that land wasn't set up for it. We had no infrastructure, no water. I mean, it was just a fenced-in little pasture with nothing there. So I just didn't seem like the right spot to do that. And uh, But I started, like, looking... You know, I was still really interested in just local food production as a whole, and I started seeing stuff about market gardening and microgreens and all that kind of stuff that I'm doing now. And I had no interest in being a gardener. I that really it it seemed too small. My vision for what I wanted to do was livestock and big and whatever. Uh, but when I started like doing more more research on the market gardening and stuff, and I saw the numbers (laughs) that they could do on such a small space, that really changed my mind. Uh, there was one farmer in particular, I kind of started watching, uh, who lives in British Columbia, Canada. I think he's not even a farmer anymore, but he was doing urban farming and, uh, basically farming in his backyard and was doing a hundred thousand dollars on a quarter acre, uh, just growing leafy greens and microgreens. I'm like, okay, now that sounds more like a full-time income to me. Uh, And that's really what started me down the gardening path is like, uh, okay, we'll do the chickens and then supplement with the market garden. We'll kind of do both. So we did it for one year, uh, put in a small little uh, garden, uh, started doing lettuce, spinach, all that kind of stuff. Um, And uh, at the end of that first year of doing it both, I think that was 2017, uh, 16 or 17, I uh, looked at the numbers, and I'm like, what in the world are we doing with these chickens? Like, they're a waste of time. We did 10x with the garden, what we did with the chickens. So, bye-bye chickens, and uh, just decided that we were market gardeners from there on.
0: I have to take a break. That was a tremendous Reader's Digest version <laughs> of how Steve Strassheim got to this point. And when we come back, I'm going to ask him why he didn't just go work in the oil field in the Bakken, because if he grew up in Beat Country in Montana, he had an oil job waiting for him. We'll be back with more Roll Route after this. And now let's talk about a brand of beef program. More details about the certified Piedmontese system and how you can fit into that are found at LoneCreekCattleCo.com. Go to the homepage, and if you go to contact us, you'll find a plethora of phone numbers and individuals that you can contact, or just send an email and ask for more information. The bottom line, you use the Lone Creek Cattle Company sires on your cows. This is not a Piedmontese cow program. It's a terminal sire program. You verify that those calves that you raise and keep for six weeks after weaning are sired by the Piedmontese Bulls, and you qualify for the premium one hundred and eighty dollars over market price. Details at lunkrate Welcome back. Roll route, Trent Lewis alongside Side, Steve Strassheim and Jenny Swaggart. Did I mention before we started, Steve, that we are booming in the metropolitan Plentywood, Montana with this broadcast today?
2: Well, yeah, Plentywood. haven't been there for a long (laughs) long time.
0: (laughs) I haven't been there for far too long. It was a wonderful Valentine's Day a long time ago. But anyway, Plentywood. I bet not many people ask you about Plentywood on a regular Uh, basis. You know,
2: I haven't heard that name in probably as long as I've been there. Yeah. Don't, don't blink if you drive through.
0: <laughs> I love Plentywood. It's a great town.
2: You know, that whole area up there is really nice. It's just really sparse. You can watch your dog run away for three days up there. It's uh, just Yeah, bath, but then you go to Scobie bathrobe.
0: and you get it back and it's all good. So that's, yeah. that's
2: wonderful. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, so anyway, we got to talking. Well, I mentioned during the before we went out that if you grew up in beat country in Montana, there's also some... Oil business around the Bakken maybe isn't what it was seven years ago, but it'll be back.
1: I'm sure yeah. because Yellowstone takes place there and their intro. <laughs> you
0: really don't want to go down that path, do you?
1: <laughs> no, I do not.
0: <laughs> no, because what's happening on Yellowstone does not resemble what happens in Williston, Sydney in any way, shape, or form.
1: All right, never, so never really that, entertainment.
0: I, yeah. Well, you don't want to see it, Steve, because it's 100% financed by the Chinese and they are buying Western culture to, it, with an attempt to destroy it. So that's the reason that we don't want to go there. Um, Steve, so you got rid of the chickens. I'm I'm perplexed by that because you got to keep chickens. Chickens are like the source of the most efficient cost of unit of protein. But yep. a lot of people can't grasp making a living on two acres. And I think you said you evolved into doing
2: that. Yeah, we actually just picked up that last uh, acre and three-quarter this year. I was actually making a living off of a quarter acre for the last four years. So um, I can chisel that two acres down even further to really blow people's minds.
0: You are one of those Iowa farmers that are the problem. You're never happy with what you have. You have to get three (laughs) times bigger. You went from a quarter acre to two and a half acres. That's just ridiculous that you get so big. Yeah, we're uh,
2: conquering by expansion.
1: (laughs) Outside the field, kind of. Because we were talking last week, and I was like, okay, these are some things I want to try for 2022. And he's like, well, you could do this, because I want to purchase a baler for small bales. And he's like, why don't you just do this? Why don't you do that? And it's like, I didn't think about some of those things, because it's not the normal Thing that farmers
2: do. Well, so, you know, I get, on Twitter. I get on Twitter, uh, I follow a lot of, you know, friends with a lot of uh, conventional farmers, I, I still take an interest in that type of stuff. I don't, uh, you know, a lot of people in my world now uh, mean uh, commodity agriculture, and I don't. I think it's important to understand why farmers farm the way they do at all sizes and scales, and we all contribute. Uh, so on Twitter, I, have for years, have followed a lot of commodity people, and all I hear on there is bitching about prices and, you know, different factors that are out of their control. I much prefer to control my own. The thing, the thing that I really enjoy about being a small farm and direct-to-consumer, uh, it takes a little more work on the marketing side, but you can control so much more about your operation, and anything's possible that as long as you can sell it to somebody. And so when uh, you're know, in your and I's conversation the other day, you know, if you think about uh, trying to get into an already established market, yeah, it's really hard because you already have the players set up. You already have the pricing set up. You can't control any of that, and you have to be able to hopefully find your way into that. Whereas if you think outside the box and do something that other people aren't doing or selling to a different market of the same product, maybe just packaged a little bit differently, well, now all of a sudden you have the market to yourself.
0: So uh, I have a neighbor that has a greenhouse, and actually I did a, a Trent on the Loose TV program about this about a month ago, Steve. You might find it interesting just because it parallels a lot of what you're doing. But hy V has become a, an excellent market for them, mm-hmm. even though they do a phenomenal uh, donation program with four local schools and they bring kids to the greenhouse and they have an outdoor garden as well that's very seasonal obviously Mm -hmm. but uh, i was perplexed that it was easy enough to get in a retail market outlet like that but they're doing a sizable volume as well because there's probably five or six acres total here so how does the marketing aspect at the at the wholesale level going through retailers work is that tough
2: for us, it's not because we're – it's all market-specific. So I, I always preface that question because, you know, and people ask about markets all the time. Like, oh, how is how is it to get into restaurants? How is it to get in here, and how do you do that? I have to preface everywhere is different everywhere. So it was really easy for me because we don't have a, virtually any local competition trying to get into those locations. So it was as simple to get into 2 high V's for me as walking in there and – saying to the produce manager, hey, I've got this stuff we'd like to get on wow. the shelf, uh, easy, pretty simple. Uh, but you go into other markets, and maybe those high V shelves are already filled with other local products. Well, it might be a little difficult to position yourself, and now you have to uh, reevaluate your, pro- you know, your proposition to them. Maybe your price has to be lower. Maybe you have to package it differently to try and find room on those shelves. But around here, not hard at all pretty easy for us. And we're in, uh, currently we're in six grocery stores, uh, soon to be a seventh, and two of those are Hy-Vee's.
0: So how far away would they be? What's the farthest one away?
2: Uh, Our farthest grocery location is 45 minutes. Our trading area is about a 45-minute circle around us. That's
0: incredible. And and did I pick up that you're doing you're not seasonal. You have products to deliver to those stores in January when round. the wind chills 30 below.
2: Yep. Yeah. yeah, I got a whole rack of product I'm going to uh, harvest as soon as I get off the line with you folks today. So we've got stuff 52 weeks of the year. So, in his I
1: office, mean- in his house.
2: Uh, well, we've graduated when we bought this property. Nothing's in my house anymore. When we started uh, way back in the day, I used to grow microgreens in our basement. Uh, oh my God, that was terrible. But, uh, now I've got this nice shop and a heated, I mean, it's, it's set up for it. So we're, we have kind of a nice little, for an urban style farm, like we are, I have like nearly the perfect setup. It's really nice and very thankful we were able to find this place.
0: So you just created the image that uh, I think a lot of people maybe consider diversifying. You can call them a hoop barn, a hoop house, or a a greenhouse, whatever you want to call them, but you've just given the impression that it just takes the right amount of care. It doesn't have to be an extravagant, uh, big investment facility to grow these greens in.
2: Not at all. You can you can grow microgreens in your house. You don't even need a hoop house for that. You can find. Well, I actually
0: do grow microgreens in my house, but Kelly then complains that I need to vacuum and it's just a whole (laughs) different story.
2: Uh, but you know, as you, as you, uh, as we did, you know, you start with something small and you just keep adding to it. And that's how we got to the hoop houses. Uh, we just put those up within the last two years, uh, started with one, added two, added another one just in 2021. Um, And we have product out in those. I mean, it's minus whatever it is out there right now. Actually, I'm looking at the thermometer. Uh, It's 12 degrees in my unheated big hoop house right now. And um, it's minus whatever it is outside. So uh, two little thin pieces of plastic can make a big difference in temperature. And you think, well, 12 degrees, what in the world can you grow at 12 degrees? Uh, Spinach is viable down to 5 degrees very easily. So at 12 degrees, it's where in bermuda shorts and uh tank top it it does not heat, you know 12 degrees uh once the sun comes out it pops right back up and you wouldn't even know it was frozen i do
0: not want to see your spinach and bermuda short shorts
2: you <laughs> <know>. <laughs> so winter winter growing is actually in some ways easier than in oh summer growing
1: so what about
2: oh say that again you were cutting out
1: um how so
2: Oh, how is winter growing easier? Um, It's less work. Uh, You plant it in September. You don't have to weed. You don't really have to water. uh, You get it established, and then basically uh, it just grows. uh, And then, you know, you have to – there's a little trick to it uh, with lighting. Um, We're working on daylight. It's not the temperature so much as the daylight hours. We lose uh, daylight hours at about November 7th when we go underneath 10 hours of daylight a day. So your, your crop has to be established enough at that point to get the last 20% of its growth, other, otherwise it, it won't grow. So we have to kind of work around those uh, daylight hours. Now we cross back over those 10 hours, February 7th here, uh, and then it's like a switch flips and everything just boop, starts growing really quickly again. It's kind of, it's really crazy to watch it. So essentially those tunnels for us act like really big walk-in coolers. That stuff's really not growing too much now. It's sitting there full grown, and I just go harvest it when I need it. So there's not very much work to it other than just to go out there once a week and cut what I need. Um, There's not very much maintenance. So in a lot of ways, it's a lot less work than summer growing. Hmm.
0: Most but there's certainly. a lot of,
2: there's some more nuance there's some more nuances to it basically my job in the winter time is to keep it from not dying that's really my only job and most of it wants to survive you just have to kind of give it the conditions uh which is just uh maintaining moisture you know humidity levels in there um and keeping it dry uh wet leaves are your enemy so just keeping it dry in there and aside from that it's a great place to sit and have a beer in the afternoon when the sun's out. So, <laughs>
0: 12 degrees is a perfect time to have a beer any place, anytime, anywhere, I reckon. Steve Struth, we have one segment left. We will do that. We're going to find out if this is as easy as he makes it sound. If it's this easy, why aren't more people doing it? Instead, the Iowa farmer wants to plant more corn, more soybeans. Grow some microgreens. That's the question. We'll return with more after this. I want to remind you about Protect the Harvest. I told you yesterday about the Ryan Weaver video that just really hit me hard about heroes. Protect the Harvest continues to bring Americana to everybody. Standing up for property rights. Had a very interesting discussion in a live call or talk show yesterday in Fargo. And we were talking about the stand at Paxton County. In fact, you know what, folks? I'm going to, you know, normally when we would do this live on Facebook, which we don't do anymore because I want you to hear it first right here on the radio, I would have these uh, trivia questions and people who answered it right would get a dog lover movie DVD from Protect the Harvest. Here's the deal. You tell me what state the stand at Paxton County takes place in, the first person to send me an email, trentluse at gmail.com. With the state that the stand at Paxton County takes place in, inspired by a true story, I'll send you the dog lover and some other Protect the Harvest paraphernalia. So, that is Trent Lusa at gmail.com. What state did the stand at Paxton County take place in? And you can watch that movie on Netflix. I strongly encourage, it's cold tonight. Watch the movie, The Stand at Paxton County on Netflix. And go to protecttheharvest.com for full details. Welcome back. Roll route. Trent Lewis alongside Steve Strauss. I'm joining us from Mitchell, Iowa. Jenny Swaggert, Tremont, Illinois. Yes, sir. Uh, Steve, before we run out of time, one area that I wanted to really address with you is uh, we know in the food business, I'm including fertilizers and farm and your neighboring Iowa corn farmers and and even what's happening in the livestock world issues with the supply chain that being seed availability you still have to fertilize these plants are you experiencing any supply chain disruption
2: uh not very much um seed in the vegetable world so far has been pretty uh steady there's been uh last year we you know there's a couple varieties we usually like to get that we couldn't get but you know there's other ones that are pretty similar we can pop those in uh so we didn't Really have any major disruptions? Our prices on our packaging have went up. I mean, they've, they've doubled. Uh, we we package all of our microgreens in little plastic clamshell containers and put a nice label on it. Um, our clamshell packaging has doubled in the last year, so that's made life a lot interesting. But what otherwise, has-
1: sorry, what oh, has caused the price point to um, increase? Is it fertilizer?
2: I don't know. We don't really uh, – we don't use a ton of fertilizer. We kind of get the benefit of uh, leafy greens being a really low feeder for the most part. So we put a lot of compost on, which we can get locally. We make a lot of our own. Uh, we, we bring in a lot of it. But we don't put on a lot of – we don't put on any synthetic fertilizer. So I don't really know what those prices are. Uh, that hasn't affected us really. Uh, our, our inputs are super low. We plant a seed um compost you know that's it
0: uh actually you can try to get away from the bakken all you want steve the reason that your packaging increases are going up is that we have an administration trying to cripple the petroleum business and all of those packaging products are made from petroleum-based products
2: that's what i wondered You know, they stayed steady for, you know, really up until the last, I don't know when exactly, it was probably 8 to 12 months ago, somewhere in there. It started inching up a little bit now. They've leveled now uh, for the last month or two, but they're not dropping, so they've kind of, it seems like it's peaked, but it seemed like every time we put an order in for our uh, packaging this summer, it was like, oh, it's another $10 this time, and. You know, it doesn't seem like a whole lot, but, uh, when you're talking about as much volume as we run, uh, Mm -hmm. yeah, every, every penny counts on every unit. So it's,
0: yeah. So, so uh, again, I come, I come back to where I started a while ago. You make this sound too easy. There has to be more hurdles involved than you're sharing
2: with us. There's a lot of hurdles. (laughs) The biggest hurdles is I I kind of, uh, had mentioned, oops, um, Growing, I think, is almost the easy part. And I'm not a talented grower by any means. I, I'm i not a uh science-y farmer that knows everything about soil biology and all that. I really, uh, out of everything on my business, that's the least I know. Uh, I can grow you the 15 or 20 crops that I grow up, down, sideways, backwards, and on the moon. But if you ask me to grow you... Uh, uh, potato. I don't know how to grow a potato. Uh, I know what I, the, the crops that I know really well, and I can market and sell those really well. Uh, if I need to bring in a new one, I learn those. But um, I'm not a, that talented of a farmer, actually. But the Nobody. the hardest part the hardest part of uh, du- doing direct sale is the marketing. Uh, and mm-hmm. as I mentioned at the beginning of the interview sales and marketing is my background so i had a little bit of a leg up a lot of farmers don't like that part of farming which is why a lot of them like to just sit in tractors and watch netflix or whatever they do in there now um they don't like to go talk to customers and even small farmers i'm not just picking on big farmers a lot of small farmers too just want to go out and weed the garden and pick tomatoes. They don't want to go stand at the farmer's market and talk to customers and all that stuff. So uh, you have to, if you're going to get into my type of business, you have to prepare yourself for that. You're a salesman first and a farmer second.
0: That, that farmer's market scenario is a tough one though, because we don't do any uh, micro We do meat. We do pork, yep. a little yep. bit of beef. Yep. And, my wife, she's uh, she's full bore on the marketing aspect of that from a direct consumer standpoint. And she can go to Kearney, Nebraska, to a farmer's market and be there for eight hours and interact with four people. And, and then the next time you'll have 40. It's just not consistent. And it, you just yeah. sit back and you're like, there's got to be a better way than sitting here and, talking to four people.
2: And there, and there is a better way. Uh, farmer's markets, out of all the different, sales channels that we're in, uh I have a love hate with farmers markets. I love right. them because they're a great way to connect with people. But my goal is with the farmers market is to eventually convert those people to buy directly from me in a means that I doesn't entail me to go to the farmers market after a while. We're getting to that we're getting closer to that point, but we still kind of need the farmers markets. Uh, but uh, farmers' markets, from a grower's perspective, are super inefficient. There's a uh, huge amount of time invested into it. Uh, they take up days, not just hours. I mean, you're you're preparing for that market the day before. Then you have to get up early, pack up your stuff, drive to the market, set up your tent, stand there. It might be raining. It might be a tornado. Whatever you got to be prepared for it, and then you hopefully don't have much to bring back home. But you got to load her back up and bring it back home, unpack everything, and by that time, your Saturday's shot. You can't really get much done the rest of the day. So farmers markets, um, I encourage any new grower to get involved with them because they're a really great way to connect with your customers. It's more load.
1: of a marketing piece. Yeah, absolutely. Yep.
2: Yeah. I a mean, place
1: where you're going to sell de- exactly market.
2: develop develop your tribe as I say get, get your people under your tent uh, is another way to say that um, and then try to figure out a way to distribute your product to those people um, that doesn't entail you going to the farmers market eventually and our strategy for that is to uh, collect their emails get them on an email list and then convert them over to our home delivery slash CSA program
1: how much time do you spend driving delivering, things, delivering
2: uh, things? peak of the summer probably about a full day. Once a week? Um trying to whittle that down closer to once a week but uh, this year it's it was It's hard. Yeah, it's it, that's a question, you know, people always like assume like a lot of my... I spend the least amount of time out in the garden. Um, we've found a way to mechanize a lot of the stuff we do. Planting is mechanized for the most part. Uh, we have a, a mechanical harvester, you know, for some things, you know, th- they spend a lot of less time in the garden than we do on the post harvest side, washing, packaging, sales, distribution. Those are the four big labor, uh, pieces of our, the business. So I spend a lot of time sales, marketing, distribution,
1: I love how you have spent so much time and you've really analyzed your brand. And we had talked about this um, when we began selling lamb direct to customer. I had asked, I think it was you and Will Schultz, about what, do you, what are you putting on your packaging? Because I don't want to be misleading and say we're selling organic lamb or something like that. And so you had advised me to just stick with Schweigert Farms and that this is a family farm that we do too.
2: You know, and there again, I have a little bit of a leg up in other markets because I don't have a ton of other local competition, uh, virtually none on the vegetable side. And so um, I don't have to resort to some of the buzzwords. We don't certify organic. We we don't certify organic. We don't even use that word. We don't use any of those buzzwords at all. Our marketing strategy is uh, uh, what's our value proposition to our ideal customer. And that is quality and convenience. Those two things are what we sell on. Uh, And so we don't have to rely on some of that. You know, if people ask us about our growing practices, we're, you know, I I hate to say, Oh, we're super transparent about it, but we are. We we don't you have to rely on a lot of that. Uh, in the, the chemical inputs we don't really have to use, or very little of, just because of the crop selection that we've chosen, and so we can get away with uh, not having to do any of that, rather than trying to figure out how to get around it. But anyway, uh, we don't spend a lot of time on that. A lot of people, honestly, in our world, doesn't they don't care. They want to know you. They want to know uh that it's good quality and it's convenient to get a hold of that's kind of the three things that i focus on i don't
1: and it's a very simple logo and brand
2: yeah simple i mean uh, we could have a whole other podcast on branding i'm not an expert but i've done a, a lot of research on it look at the big corporations out there what's what's the you know common denominator between all their brands and logos they're very simple look at walmart it's just the word targets a bullseye i mean they don't have complicated graphics because you have to think about i have to get this printed i have to get it embroidered all that costs extra money you want it simple recognizable i mean look at our logo basically looks like a you know it's just simple real simple
0: steve you also mentioned in the middle of that i have a question a csa community service, um, community supported agriculture. Are you doing things with the the community direct in that regard?
2: Yes. Yep. We started, um, well, largely because of COVID. If you would ask me two years ago, we would have never done home delivery. Uh, but COVID kind of pushed us there a little bit because we lost all of our restaurants overnight. And so we pivoted really quickly. Uh, luckily we had already started a email list, um, Uh, We lucked out there. So we had a lot of direct consumer emails, and we just started saying, hey, uh, we're pivoting. If you want home Mm -hmm. delivery, here's the list. Let us know. And that has just grown. And in 2021, um, we morphed the a la carte into like a CSA style. We call it our salad subscription because nobody knows what a CSA is up here. Like if you say that, they're like, what? Is that like some part on my car or something? I don't know. We call it a salad <laughs> subscription. People people know what uh, salad is, and they know what subscription is. Those two words oh, are like pretty it. easy to understand. Come so we just call it salad
0: it's subscription. A salad uh, version of the wine club. You're gonna get pretty your much. salad every yeah. month. there you go. Yeah,
2: you buy it. You you pay me once for it, and then I bring it to your doorstep for ten weeks. And simple as that. And people love it. It's simple. It, it scratches the convenience itch that. A lot of people, you know, we're in the world of convenience. Everybody wants convenience. How much more convenient is it than me bringing it to your front door?
0: All right, Steve Strasheim, we have to go. I can't believe we're out of time. We do have time to meet tonight at the Cadillac in Sydney, Montana. I've just looked at the menu. The heavily (laughs) marbled ribeye, rich and beefy cut. $29.99 Twenty nine ninety nine at the Cadillac in Sydney. We'll see you there. Larson, We're coming. Get ready. <laughs> We've successfully journeyed down the road with everything you ever wanted to know about solid subscriptions. Thank you, Steve. I appreciate it. As always, a pleasure. Jenny Swigert. Trent, Thank you. you. all roads do leave. Hey, thanks for having me on. I appreciate up. it.